0: This week, Frontier Communications files Chapter 11 in Southern District of New York, host of companies skip coupons, Revlon enters into commitment letter with ad hoc group of term lenders. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelvin
0: And I'm Raksha Manjanath, Later this episode, the First Day team will review first quarter 2020 bankruptcy filings, and we'll hear from legal analyst Sean Daly. It's Sunday, April
1: 19th. Frontier Communications filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York, disclosing entrance into a restructuring support agreement and term sheet with holders of more than 75% of the company's approximately $11 billion in outstanding unsecured notes. That would hand over over 100% of pre-diluted reorganized equity to the unsecured notes, in addition to take-back debt and a partial cash paydown. The contemplated restructuring would, quote, leave unimpaired all general unsecured creditors and holders of secured and subsidiary debt and is expected to reduce the company's debt by over $10 billion. In addition, the debtors disclosed commitments for $460 million in dip financing, which, along with in excess of $700 million in cash on hand, represents total liquidity in excess of $1.1 billion. While the dip funding was not up for hearing at this week's first-day hearing, the ad hoc committee of first lien lenders and the ad hoc group of second lien lenders both objected to the financing, with the first lien group commenting that the debtor's RSA, quote, is a fragile house of cards that will not withstand scrutiny as these cases unfold. The group argues that the debtors restructuring construct would, quote, "...deprive senior lenders of their contractual entitlements to default interest and pro-rata payments that they would otherwise be entitled to if their debt is to be unimpaired." Asserting that the debtors do not need to post dip loan, the first lien lenders point to the fact that the debtors reported having more than $700 million in cash on hand as of the petition date and that they will receive an additional $1.35 billion in sale proceeds upon closing the sale of their Pacific Northwest assets. The ad hoc committee argues that there is no, quote, looming emergency for which the debtors need to secure additional financing and that they have not explained why they need the dip. Even if the debtors required additional liquidity, according to their objection, the proposed dip loan, quote, would not provide them with the additional liquidity they claim to need. One of the key requirements of the proposed dip is that the debtors fully repay the prepetition-revolving lenders, the objection adds. The first lien lenders assert that this would result in the $460 million dip loan requiring the debtors to, quote, selectively repay $850 million of pre first lien involving loans, thereby reducing the debtor's liquidity rather than increasing it. At the first day hearing, Judge Drain approved the debtor's proposed adequate protection, which is the subject of the interim order. In approving the request, Judge Drain said that because the interim relief did not involve any dip funding... The adequate protection rights of the first and second lien parties would be, quote, fairly minimal at this point. The court also noted that the payment of professional fees and non-default rate interest were both, quote, quite sufficient under the circumstances. Judge Strain asked the debtors to make several changes to the proposed form of interim order, including the removal of, quote, broad release provisions and the inclusion of further explanation regarding the potential future recharacterization of the adequate protection payments. He encouraged the debtors and the ad hoc groups to focus on a, quote, sensible resolution of their differences, or at least to narrow their issues in the interim period.
0: A host of companies this week elected to skip scheduled coupons that enter 30-day grace periods as the COVID-19 pandemic's grip tightened on industries from energy to retail. Ultra Petroleum, which last September suspended drilling in its Pinedale Field in Wyoming, declined to pay coupons on its 6.875% senior notes due 2022 and 7.125% senior notes due 2025. The company on April fourteenth disclosed growing concern language and said it expected to be precluded from additional revolver draws unless it obtained a waiver from lenders. Diamond Offshore decided it would not make the semiannual interest payment on its 5.70% senior notes to 2039, instead retaining Lazard Fares and Paul Weiss to assist it. its evaluating, quote, various alternatives with respect to its capital structure. The company's bondholders are organizing with Millbank, according to sources. Intelsat chose to withhold a $125 million interest payment due Wednesday on its 8.5% Jackson notes due 2024, after parent Intelsat last week withdrew 2020 guidance and delayed its first quarter 10Q. An Intelsat-Jackson crossholder group is working with CenterView, while a group of Jackson-unsecured Lux and ICF noteholders is working with Holy Hand Loki. Appaloosa Management, which holds both the debt and equity in Intelsat, is working with Paul Weiss. Moving on to Neiman Marcus, according to a letter sent to Neiman's board by Marble Ridge Capital, Neiman Marcus did not make the interest payment on the bonds that Marble Ridge owns. According to the letter, quote, as you know, Neiman Marcus Group, LTD LLC, failed to make its payment of interest due on bonds owned by Marble Ridge. Neiman Marcus is now in default on its payment obligations and can no longer hide behind its protestations to the contrary. Accordingly, please be advised that Marble Ridge will take all necessary actions to protect its rights, including its right to seek all remedies, all of which were expressly preserved. JCPenney Penney elected to pass on a $12 million coupon due on its 6.375% notes due 2036, choosing instead to enter the 30-day grace period to, quote, evaluate certain strategic alternatives, none of which have been in- implemented at this time. Service King skipped a $14.8 million coupon payment due April 1 on its $375 million, 7.875% unsecured notes due 2022, but said it would make the payment by the end of a 30-day grace period, according to sources.
1: Revlon disclosed entrance this week into a commitment letter with an ad hoc group of term lenders. Under the commitment, the group is backstopping $850 million in new money financing. The proceeds of which would be used to repay Revlon's $200 million 2019 term loan facility, pay fees and expenses in connection with the refinancing, and, to the extent of any excess, for general corporate purposes. The refinancing transaction also contemplates the roll-up of a portion of Revlon's $1.7 billion 2016 term loan into two new roll-up facilities. Each of the $850 million new money facility and the two roll-up facilities are to be secured and guaranteed by specified brand assets, which would be contributed to BrandCo subsidiaries. The new facilities would prime any amount of the 2016 term loan with respect to the value of these specified brand assets. The company's disclosures do not specify the holdings of the supporting ad hoc group. The refinancing transactions are contingent on in excess of 50% of loans outstanding under the 2016 term loan facility consenting to an amendment to the facility to permit the incurrence of the new term loans and security package. Through the amendment, Revlon will also seek to amend the maturity of the 2016 term loan to June 2025, subject to springing maturities. A group of lenders claiming to hold in excess of 50% of Revlon's $1.71 billion L plus 350 term loan due 2023 has shown support for a cooperation agreement to oppose an amendment required to complete an alternative refinancing proposal, Rio reported.
0: On the island of Puerto Rico, Judge Laura Taylor Swain, after taking the matter under advisement in early March, on Wednesday issued an opinion in the Law 29 dispute between the Commonwealth Government and the Premisa Oversight Board, declaring that Law 29, which eliminates the obligation of municipalities to contribute to the Commonwealth Government health plan and pay system, and the related joint resolutions are, quote, unenforceable and of no effect." The Title III court also ruled that the defendants are, quote, permanently enjoined from implementing and enforcing Law 29. The opinion granted the motion for summary judgment with respect to five of the complaints counts. Three of the complaints counts were denied. Judge Swain found it, quote, patently obvious that the elimination of the municipality's obligation to reimburse the Commonwealth for pension obligations is inconsistent with the 2019 fiscal plan. Also on Wednesday, Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority Executive Director Jose Ortiz signaled that the utilities restructuring support agreement is likely to be renegotiated in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, pointing to anticipated amendments to PREPA's fiscal plan and recovery metrics as factors driving a potential reworking of the RSA. Ortiz indicated that the changes to the RSA would likely not happen until early 2021.
1: Other top stories last week were... LSC Communications enters Chapter 11 with $100 million dip commitment, citing failed quad graphics merger, COVID-19, and fundamental changes in industry as catalysts for filing. CEC Entertainment engages Wild Gottschall PJT partners to explore strategic alternatives, creates restructuring committee. AMC Entertainment Holdings, Inc. announces proposed $500 million private offering of first lien notes.
0: And now, here is Jim Holloway from Houston with the week ahead.
2: Well, greetings everybody. Every week a new adventure, and this one is no different, although there does seem to be quantitatively less of it on the calendar, as though the goddess of fortune, whose name is Fortuna, is keeping her little clean of what I reckon will be a most memorable or a most forgettable earnings season anyways. Monday, April 20th, a name which is uh, well known to followers of Tesla and Elon Musk. Anyways, there's an omnibus hearing in fes with a confirmation and ds hearing in valeritas which is a middle market name recently added to our coverage they make wearable insulin delivery devices since i know you were wondering as i certainly was tuesday april 21st omnibus hearings in windstream zohar and forever 21 wednesday april 22nd it's those omnibuses again this time in puerto rico purdue pharma and dean foods there's also earnings after the close from martin midstream stream april 23rd there's hearings in dean foods and sears and an earnings call from martin midstream and friday ds hearing in murray energy and it's the omnibus again and this time it's for one web that w- one web excuse me that would seem to be all Back to y'all in New York, where I believe my good friend and colleague Sean Daly is going to tell you about important issues in bankruptcy. Take it away, Sean. On
3: week four of the coronavirus legal roundup, we'll take a look at bankruptcy court disclosures regarding the Coronavirus Economic Stabilization Act of 2020, or as it's better known, the CARES Act. Check in on a few new cases and drop footnotes for your further reference on other coronavirus related themes. The CARES Act was passed on March 27th. And it appears that, at least in Reorg's covered universe, Pier 1 was the first debtor to reference it in a pleading its March 31st cost-cutting motion. The debtors suggested that many of the landlords and vendors that would be impacted by the relief sought in their motion may be able to take advantage of funding under the CARES Act, but that, quote, unfortunately, due to certain eligibility and solvency requirements, the debtors would be unable to apply for funding. Other debtors followed suit. Uh, There's a filing approximately the same time in the Dean Foods case from an ad hoc note holder group discussing uh, funding generally, but then also getting into uh, some of the changes, particularly in that case carryback provisions that might have been interesting under uh, changes to net operating loss rules and uh, payroll tax deferral. NOL provisions were also mentioned uh, just almost essentially as a, a potential source of value for the debtors in the Sanchez Energy Disclosure Statement and also in the Frontier Communications first-day papers. Raven Air, an Alaska-based airline operator, um, noted in their first-day declaration that they had submitted applications for grants on April 3rd, just two days before they filed for Chapter 11, uh, but at that time it was uncertain, they said, whether any any applications would be granted. Um, in quorum health where there's a valuation dispute certain subpoenas that went out to senior creditors included uh, a request for quote all documents and communications concerning any funds or other monies applied for or received under the cares act so it's filtering into cases in uh, many different ways and the true religion dip motion in a footnote the debtors said they had evalu- evaluated the availability of any funds under the cares act but quote, after careful consideration, determined that they were not eligible for government funding, or to the extent that there was a possibility that they would be eligible, they would not be able to wait the time necessary to find out whether a loan would be available. Again, just pointing to acute liquidity concerns for various companies. Longview Power, a merchant coal-fired generating facility, said in its first day declaration that it had, quote, applied for a loan with the Small Business Administration under the Payroll Protection Program and was notified on April 10th that the loan was approved. Longview expects to receive the funds post-petition and expects to learn more about the amount of the loan following the petition date. Longview expects to use the loan proceeds to fund payroll. So, similar to Raven Air, where you see uh, subsequent debtors still, you know, applying for grants and then filing shortly thereafter, uh, It doesn't say when Longview Power applied, but it says they were notified on April 10th about uh, loan approval. The petition date in that case was April 14th. And then good timing because the payroll protection program, uh, which, again, administered by the Small Business Administration and is is part of the overall CARES Act, uh, ran out of funds or the initially appropriated funds uh... this past thursday the 16th and pivoting to a quick discussion of how demand drop-offs in various industries and supply chain issues are impacting debtors in long uh... again I, I think this is a good general point to note uh... council at the first day hearing said you know the coronavirus is not the precipitating factor for the bankruptcy but just added another layer of difficulty uh, and they brought up the point that for the power se- the power sector, the uh, coronavirus pandemic and, and changes in uh, electricity usage have resulted in significant reductions in demand as industrial and commercial users are shut down. In the Murray Energy cases, CEO Robert Moore testified during hearing that uh, certain of the debtors utility customers have full stockpiles they aren't accepting deliveries and in several cases pointing to force majeure contract clauses to excuse performance and finally there's more bad news for oil field services margins in the ep energy case where the debtors uh, filed a motion late friday night to reject a number of executory contracts including amongst others for certain uh, leased gas compressors in the Eagle Ford, the debtors, and this is a theme that was brought up in the CEO's uh, confirmation hearing testimony back in late February, that uh, the debtors now believe that well, first uh, they have hit a lower level of production in the Eagle Ford, but second. And the debtors say that the uh, the rates charged under these compression agreements are now above current market rates, and the debtors believe they may be able to obtain uh, such equipment and services from, quote, alternative providers at more cost-effective rates. Again, not, not great if you're on the other side of that. Moving to a few deals where we saw additional indications on capital markets availability and deals um, either... Needing to go back to the negotiating table or otherwise being recut Uh, this past Tuesday in the Windstream cases, the UCC and Unsecured Notes Indenture Trustees uh, brought up several issues and limited objections to the debtor's latest exclusivity extension motion. Uh, The UCC flagged that there is, quote, significant uncertainty with respect to uh, the company's settlement with Unity, um, which is a large part of the debtor's plan process. The UCC said that it appears the unity settlement, which was rescheduled recently uh, to be heard on May 7th from April 21st, quote, may be on the verge of unraveling, casting significant uncertainty on the debtor's ability to proceed with the plan. So it's an interesting example of how in this case, a non-debtor matter or general market volatility, I guess, is spilled over into a Chapter 11 case. Is Background part of the Windstream Debtors settlement with Unity announced at the beginning of March uh, included a, a provision where certain funds that Unity would pay to the Windstream Debtors would be raised from a sale of Unity common stock to Windstream first lien creditors led by Elliott Management. The share count and offering price were locked in. For that stock, it was set at $6.33 in order to reflect what the party said was the closing price on the date when an agreement in principle for the settlement was first reached. Unity, for reference, since then, Unity closed just under $10 the day prior to the announcement of the settlement at the beginning of March, then decreased to the low $5 range at the uh, market's latest nadir in mid to late March. And then closed this Friday at five dollars and eleven cents. So, obviously, some some concern for that element of the settlement a hearing on a motion to approve the settlement was pushed to late uh, was pushed in late March, from April 3rd to April 21st, and then as, as just mentioned a minute ago, more recently from April 21st to May 7th. Also, the trial in the unity adversary proceeding, which was previously adjourned in light of the settlement announcement, has been rescheduled to begin on May 12th if the unity settlement, um, and this is from the debtors in a notice earlier this month, quote, is not finalized and approved before that date. The debtors noted in that same notice that uh, the plans, uh, plan support agreement entered into at the approximately the same time as the unity settlement Um, includes a milestone for the debtors to obtain approval of the unity settlement and a backstop commitment agreement for uh, certain new money to the Windstream Debtors Estates by no later than April 22nd, and that uh, failure to meet that milestone would give right to certain termination rights under the PSA. According to the notice in, uh, again, early April, the debtors said they, quote, are currently discussing extending this milestone with the required parties under the PSA. Uh, but if that hasn't changed, March 22nd, coming up this week. Finally, a uh, few more mothball motions in retail cases. True religion debtors uh, mentioned their filing just a minute ago. They, they filed one. And then there's a hearing this coming Tuesday in Forever 21 where, uh, slightly different from the pattern we've seen in other cases, uh, the buyer of the Forever 21 assets sale was approved in February, I believe. Uh, the buyer, as opposed to the estate, has asked, and, and again, given that sort of back fact pattern, uh, the buyers has asked the court to modify the sale order to provide that inventory in stores. Um, even if a, a lease contract is rejected, the inventory would not be deemed abandoned so that the debtors could conduct going out of business sales at a later point in time when, again, stores are uh, opened back up. They're also asking to pay rent only when the going-out-of-business sales are being conducted, so not right now. Um, Again, hearing on that Tuesday, so it'll be interesting to see how that one shakes out. And that's it for me this week. Stay healthy, and now here is the First Day team to discuss Q1 bankruptcies.
4: Hi, I'm Karen. I'm talking today with the team at Reorg First Day, Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland. Rear First Day monitors Chapter 11 filings across the country with more than $10 million in liabilities and tracks trends in filings through the First Day database. Jessica and Ian are going to give us a bird's eye view uh, today of Chapter 11 filing activity in the first quarter of 2020. To start us off, Jessica, can you tell us about the level of Chapter 11 filing activity throughout the first quarter of 2020? Thanks, Karen. This year's first quarter
5: was the busiest first quarter on record here at first day piling up 110 cases over the 90-day period this is the second consecutive record-setting q1 with respect to chapter 11 filing frequency after 2019's first quarter topped the first quarters of years 2016 all the way through 2018 with 104 cases in particular, cases with more than $100 million in liabilities increased sharply in 2020's Q1 and accounted for roughly one-third of the cases
4: we covered during the quarter. So how did 2020 Q1 stack up against other recent quarters?
5: The fourth quarter of 2019 recorded 83 Chapter 11s as compared to 2020, quarter one, which had 110, while quarter three of 2019, the busiest quarter on record for first day, had 123. While the third quarter of 2019 remains the busiest quarter for all cases of all first-day liability ranges, the first quarter of 2020 eclipsed 2019's third quarter in $100 million plus liability filings.
4: So Ian, let's turn it over to you. When did you first start seeing the effects of COVID-19 in bankruptcy filings? How did that change as the pandemic developed? One thing that the First Day team does is to look closely at these companies' first-day papers to get an explanation of the causes of the Chapter 11 filings in the company's own words.
6: The case we noticed that mentioned the coronavirus was Bell Orvitas Holdings, um, which filed on February 10th. The company is a commercial-stage medical technology company focused on diabetes treatment and has manufacturing in China. Valeritas said that its operations were hurt by what it described at the time as the quote rapid onset of the coronavirus epidemic, which caused the Chinese government to extend the lunar new year holiday by an additional week. Further, Valeritas said many of its manufacturing workers were rural workers and there was uncertainty as to when they would return to work. After Valeritas, it took almost another month until the debtor decided the, until the debtor decided the virus for its filing. Art Van Furniture, in its March 8 filing, said that an out-of-court refinancing that they had lined up fell through, in um, fell through, including because of significant equity market impact of coronavirus during the week of February 24th and the investors' willingness to contribute capital. Following Art Van, it started to become common for companies to point to COVID-19 for at least part of the reason for their bankruptcies. The day, after van, or the day after Art Van filed, Bluestem Brands also filed, saying that the debtor's operating environment was likely to get worse as COVID-19 impacts the retail space worldwide. Bluestem, a direct-to-consumer retailer for fashion, home, and entertainment merchandise, also noted that factories in China were closed and operating below capacity, leading to delayed receipts. The next day, on March 10th, thermal coal producer Foresight Energy said that the international coal market had come under additional pressure due to COVID-19-related ch- slowdown in the global economy.
4: So that brings us to March 10th, one month after you first noticed the pandemic being cited as a cause for Chapter 11 filings in the cases that First Aid tracks. And what's happened since then?
5: As March continued and COVID-19 kept spreading, debtors blaming the virus on their filings piled up, affecting such diverse debtors as Meatpacker Mountain States Rosen, Stem Cell Therapy Developer Biorestorative Therapies, and Miami Air International. Another airline shortly followed, as Alaska-based Raven Air filed at the start of the second quarter on April 5th. Another transportation provider also suffered as New York City taxi medallion owner Walker Service Corp. said it had to suspend operations during their pandemic, noting, though, that even before the pandemic, the value of its medallions had significantly dropped. Later in March, global communications company OneWeb, with close to $2 billion in funded debt, cited the COVID-19 pandemic and its resulting impact on the global economy for its bankruptcy as it anticipated funding opportunities dried up. The energy sector also suffered as supplier for oil fields and other industrial markets Carbo Ceramics in its March 27th filing pointed to the pandemic and severe disruption and volatility in the market that may ultimately result in the debtors falling short of their forecasted receipts. Um, The real estate industry also saw a hit. Um, There was a single asset real estate filer in the Southern District of New York that filed on April 1st. That was just after the end of the first quarter. And it said that COVID-19 was the singular reason for its filing. And it has dramatically changed the landscape for real estate transactions in New York City, if not nationwide said um, this particular filer. Um, Coronavirus-related reasons for filings continued in April, and we can touch on those in our next quarterly recap.
4: And uh, which sectors saw the biggest increases in Chapter 11 filing activity this past quarter?
6: So from 2019's fourth quarter to 2020's first, consumer discretionary filings increased 40%. Consumer staples cases jumped 57%. Energy filings went up 75% and material sector cases rose by a factor of seven. There was also a spike in filings classified under the other sector as largely caused by the sexual abuse claim-focused cases of nonprofits, Boy Scouts of America, and multiple Catholic church entities. The only sectors that saw fewer filings in this most recent quarter after 2019's fourth were communication services, industrials, and real estate.
4: What were the quarter's biggest Chapter 11 filers uh, when it comes to debt loads?
6: The first quarter's biggest filers were McDermott International, American Commercial Lines, the McClatchy Company, Foresight Energy, and OneWeb One Holdings, all of which reported liabilities between $1 billion and $10 billion. Of those companies, McDermott had the most debt reporting approximately $9.9 billion in liabilities.
4: So I know that retail has been a busy industry with respect to Chapter 11 filings over the past several years, something that First Day has been keeping an eye on. What types of retailers filed in Q1, Jessica, and... How have these cases and the filings themselves been impacted by coronavirus concerns?
5: After a brief lull in retail filings, which in general have stayed pretty consistent over the last few years, 2020's first retail chain case was filed by Pier One on February 17th, which is the first retail chain filing after Destination Maternity filed Chapter 11 on October 21st of last year. Other retail chain filers from 2020's first quarter are furniture store Art Van, New York Sporting Goods retail chain Model Sporting Goods, and the owner of stationery and greeting card company Papyrus's retail operations. Due to coronavirus, distressed retail chains will have to find a path forward in an environment with no store operations for the indefinite near term, while the pandemic looms over brick and mortar consumerism. There was also a filing during the quarter by direct-to-consumer retailer Bluestem, which has no brick and mortar operations, but has still been hindered by liquidity constraints, a weak sales performance during the 2019 holiday season, and competition from Amazon and Walmart. How
4: about for restaurant chains? Did you see any of those during the quarter?
6: Restaurant chain bankruptcies outpaced retail chain bankruptcies in the first quarter, with six companies representing nine brands as either owners, franchisors, or franchisees, including Logan's Roadhouse, Old Chicago Pizza, Kosi, Sonic, M.O.D. Pizza, Village Inn, and Crystal, all filing within the first two months of the year. From 2016 through 2019, restaurant chain filings have been pretty steady, with about 10 cases or with 10 cases exactly in each of 2016, 2017, and 2018, and eight er, and eight cases in 2018. So six within the first two months is a pretty big jump historically. In fact, the January filings of Crystal, Villagin, and Bar Louis alone represent more than half the number of restaurant locations operated or franchised by companies that filed Chapter 11 for all of 2019. The biggest restaurant filers were Craftworks and Bar Louis, both of which reported liabilities between $100 million and $500 Craftworks, which at the time of the filing operated more than 330 steakhouses and craft brewery restaurants under several brands, including Logan's Roadhouse in Old Chicago, cited lower top-line sales and deterioration in gross margins as the top contributing factors to the company's underperformance. Gastro bar chain owner Bar Louie attributed its bankruptcy to casual dining industry headwinds, an inconsistent brand experience, increased competition, and deteriorating customer traffic at traditional shopping locations. Bar Louie also cited major changes in consumer behavior, including the general national trend away from casual dining. Other restaurant filers cited shifting consumer tastes and preferences growth in labor and commodity costs, increased competition, and unfavorable lease terms. There was also COSI, which filed a prior bankruptcy case in 2016 that we had previously reported on. Cozy had a different strategy heading into Chapter 11 the second time around. Instead of trying to reorganize and keep the core brick-and-mortar dining, fast, casual business alive, the company filed Chapter 11 with the intent of pivoting from physical restaurant locations to a business focused primarily on catering, which could put it in better shape than its restaurant peers currently in the bankruptcy um, with respect to the pandemic.
4: So, Jessica, you've also been keeping an eye on grocers and food distributors. Did you see that they were experiencing similar struggles?
5: There were only a few supermarket bankruptcies in 2019, but 2020 has already started out with a number of them. Fairway supermarkets filed in January for the second time after its 2016 bankruptcy. This time, the company entered into a restructuring support agreement with an ad hoc group of lenders, and certain pre-petition lenders also agreed to provide dip financing to fund a sale process. Fairway said that since it emerged from its prior case, it has faced market pressures with an increase in competition, including from Amazon, Walmart, and Target, and also online grocers and meal kit operators like Blue Apron and HelloFresh. The first quarter also saw a filing from organic grocery chain EarthFair, which filed about two weeks after Fairway in early February. EarthFair filed because of unsuccessful remodeling and expansion efforts and the maturity of its revolver. Both Fairway and EarthFair ran a sale process, with EarthFair's assets going to multiple purchasers, including Whole Foods, Winn-Dixie, and Aldi, and Fairway's assets also going to multiple purchasers, including Village Supermarket and Amazon Retail. Another grocery chain, Lucky's Market, filed in January, also looking to sell assets, with a few purchasers lined up at the start of the case for different assets. The assets were ultimately sold to Publix and Aldi and others. Just after the third quarter ended, upscale grocer Dina DeLuca filed on April 1st. The company had already ceased operations in the middle of last year because of a failed expansion. However, the company seeks to restructure and preserve the value of the brand and get into a position to reopen the stores.
4: So now let's turn to the energy sector, which didn't have a particularly easy first quarter this year. Is that right, Ian?
6: Yes, it is. There were a lot of oil and gas company filings in the first quarter, almost 60% of which filed during the last three weeks of March. In total, there were 14 energy filers in the first quarter, which is the same number of energy filings during the first quarter of 2016, the busiest year for energy sector chapter 11 filings to date. Half of these companies reported over $100 million in liabilities, making it the second busiest sector of the year for cases with more than $100 million in debt after the consumer discretionary sector. In addition, six energy companies have filed chapter 11 in the first two weeks of the second quarter. Having dealt with the commodity price collapse that began in 2014 and sent a record number of oil and gas companies into bankruptcy during the spring of 2016, 2020's energy filers already had enough to grapple with before the pandemic, including a steep drop in oil prices to start off the year. COVID-19 complications have now blanketed the industry with more uncertainty as lenders become less willing to fund distressed companies drilling operations.
4: So lastly, ending with you, Jessica, I wanted to ask about the state of Chapter 11 filings now that we're a full two weeks into the second quarter.
5: Well, it's off to a busy start. We're already at 25 cases in the first 17 days, led by Energy Sector, with seven of those cases. With the COVID pandemic still forcing the closure of a large section of the services industry and clouding the lending market uncertainty, quarter two should be very interesting on our end.
4: Uh, It definitely looks like Q2 will be very interesting and we'll be catching up with first day's continuing coverage uh to keep abreast of all of these new developments well thank you so much jessica and ian for speaking with us today and we'll go back to the rest of the team to end off
1: thanks to the first day team and thank you for listening to another reorg weekly review as always find all of our podcasts on reorg.com itunes and SoundCloud, and of course as always we hope you and your families are healthy and safe see you next week